This morning's passage in Revelation chapter 20 is perhaps the most debated, maybe even you could say controversial, certainly one of the most opinionated, generate, opinion generating passages in all of Revelation. This this passage in Revelation 20 is a passage that is primary in moving people into particular camps in regard to their perception, their opinions, their ideas about what Revelation is teaching regarding the end of times. Because of that fact, I want to remind you of a couple things before we read the passage and your own opinions or questions start to fill your mind. So here are the two things I want to remind you of. Number one, Revelation is given to us by Jesus Christ to unify us as a church, not to divide us. And so when we read this passage, for many of you in this room, it may represent a particular perspective on Revelation in the end of times. And I want to encourage you to put that perspective in a secondary position and instead be reminded this morning that the reason Jesus gave us the revelation is so that as a church family, we would be in the same camp, together united, seeing Christ as he wants to be seen. And because we see him together as a church family, we are encouraged to faithfully live lives of worship. So number one, what we've been given in the Revelation is always intended to unite us, never to divide us. Number two, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus some very specific questions related to the end of times. They wanted to know some specific what's, and they wanted to know some detailed when's. And every time the disciples asked Jesus some specific questions related to the end of time as we know it, Jesus responded to those questions with rather vague responses. He did not give them the detailed what or the detailed when as they were asking for it in the way they were asking. No, instead, he answered very vaguely at times because Jesus had a different agenda. Jesus' agenda with his disciples' question was never to give them the specific when, the specific what, but was simply to give them enough information about what was coming under his reign and rule that they would be a people who would cling to Christ, who would be faithful, who would live lives of worship no matter what they faced. And in Revelation, we see the same agenda from Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus that we've been walking through is filled with moments of seeing things that provoke questions of, I want more detail related to the what. I want more information related to the when. 
And Jesus simply does not give us the answers to those questions because that really isn't his agenda. The reason that the scripture has been written the way it's been written, giving account of the revelation of Jesus, is so that we would attach ourselves to Jesus' primary agenda. That we would see him as he wants us to see him. And in response to seeing him, we would be faithful. And so I want to encourage you this morning To set aside anything that would be a threat to following Jesus' agenda. He wants us to read this this morning and find, because we see him in what is most clear, find the encouragement we need right now as a church family. So let's look at Revelation chapter 20. If you remember in Revelation 19, the end of 19, we saw the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. But the dragon, Satan, is still on the loose. So we're going to read Revelation 20, and we're going to read it in three different scenes. So we've got a vision here that we can best understand in three scenes. And so let's read scene 1, verses 1 through 3. Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he seized the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for 1,000 years. And he cast him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive again the nations until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a little while. If there's anything clear in scene one, it's that Satan is not the equal foe of God. We have an angel coming down from heaven that completely manhandles Satan, treats Satan as if he has no power whatsoever, takes him, binds him, throws him into the abyss, locks it up, and he cannot do a thing about it. This angel just manhandles Satan. God doesn't even have to be present. Our enemy is doomed for failure. And in this vision, it's as if he's completely powerless. He is no equal foe to God. We have a defeated enemy. Now he's sealed up in the abyss and for a thousand years, he is not able to deceive the world. Now, What all is going on in that thousand years? Let's read scene two, verses four through six. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And the souls of those beheaded on account of the witness of Jesus and on account of the word of God, and who did not worship the beast nor his image, did not receive the mark upon their foreheads or upon their hand. 
and they came to life and they ruled with Christ for a thousand years. The remaining dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Upon these, the second death has no authority. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Those who have decided to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior at the end of time as we know it, during the great wrath of God, experience the brokenness of the world and the effects of our enemy to the degree that we simply cannot imagine. Even the descriptions that we've read in Revelation about what it's like to live for Christ during this time of the great wrath of God do not adequately convey what it will really be like to live through it. We're reading about it, and it is terrifying at times. But to imagine actually living through it, these who have been beheaded for the witness of Christ and standing on the word of God, these face things that we simply cannot imagine facing, and they were faithful. They stood for Christ, and their lives were taken by the beast. And for those that stood for Christ in the most difficult and unimaginable time of darkness in all of history, are raised to life, to experience the reward of their faithfulness. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. They are vindicated. They stand with Christ in Jerusalem and are vindicated before the rest of the world that their holding on to Jesus was worth it. They are experiencing this unfettered worship of Christ, living with him and reigning with him for these thousand years in this unique expression of reward granted to those who experienced this most difficult period of history and stood faithful for Christ. They are priests. They are rulers with Christ and under the reign of Christ. And they are happy. Blessed and holy are those who experience this first resurrection. They're full of happiness and their difficulty in faithfully following Christ is now rewarded with a happiness that simply is unbelievable. Credible reward granted to those who remain faithful. Scene three. Verse 7. And when the thousand years were complete, Satan was loosed from his prison. And he went out to deceive the nations 
which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, the, the term Gog and Magog just is referring back to, it's a description in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 38 and 39, prophecies toward the end of time. And Gog and Magog are symbolic for the world that stands against the Lord. And here, this reference is made to what was prophesied in the Old Testament. So Gog and Magog representing the nations of the world. So Satan is released. He goes out to deceive the nations, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them as the sands of the sea. Verse 9. And they came up upon the plains of the earth. And they surrounded the fortified camp of the saints and the beloved city. You got that vision in your mind? And fire came down from heaven and they were devoured. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is released after being bound for a thousand years, not able to deceive the world at all, Jesus Christ is ruling for a thousand years. And Satan is not present to deceive anyone. Over 12 generations of people living on the face of the earth under the reign of Christ, where Jesus is completely the only ruler on the earth, and Satan is bound to deceive no one. And the moment Satan is released, the nations on the four corners of the earth line up behind Satan Standing in rebellion against Jesus Christ. You, you know what you just saw. You just saw in this vision. The most convincing scene. That there is no reason to delay final judgment. A thousand years with no deception from Satan. And everybody on the face of the earth, in the moment he's released, lines up behind him in defiance of Jesus Christ. There is no reason to delay judgment for one moment longer. And before the battle begins, the battle is over. Fire falls from heaven. Satan is snatched and thrown once and for all into the lake of fire, defeated forever.
That's pretty amazing. You familiar with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in the days when Hitler was leading his regime to take over uh, a great part of the world. And Bonhoeffer was a teacher and a pastor and a trainer of young pastors. A man who stood faithfully for Jesus Christ. And he stood faithfully for Christ while standing against Hitler. One of the few leaders in the church who were willing to do that. And he was very active in his opposition against Hitler. And for that, Hitler had him arrested. And he was imprisoned in a concentration camp. At the end of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life in a concentration camp in Flossenburg, he's awaiting his execution. He's been ordered to be executed by hanging. And as the day approaches for him to be executed for having stood for Christ, the Allied forces are making their way towards Flossenburg, literally only days away from liberating the concentration camp And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is executed on the gallows. And when you read the account of his life and the part of his life that includes his death. When I read that, here's what I was feeling when I read that story. That is terrible. He was literally days away from the camp being liberated and for him being rescued and vindicated before those who stood against him. And I thought to myself when I read it, I don't like the ending of this story. I mean, I know that the moment that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed on this side of heaven, he met Jesus Christ. I get that. But what I wanted to read Instead of that ending, I wanted to read this ending. That Dietrich Bonhoeffer was on the gallows, about to be hung. And the Allied forces broke into the concentration camp in Flossenburg. And he was set free before they were able to pull the lever. And he stood in victory, rescued and vindicated. That's the kind of story I like. You know, the story of justice and vindication, rescue. That's the one that if I had read, when I read his biography, I would have stood up and said, Yes! That's awesome! Instead, I read the real ending and I thought, that's terrible. There's something in each one of us that wants the story to end in rescue and vindication, in absolute, total victory, right? That kind of ending resonates in all our hearts. Revelation chapter 20 is the story of all stories, the vindication of all vindications, the victory of all victories. And it should promote in our hearts a celebration that is consistent with this vision. This is the story of all stories, the stories that all of our hearts long for. This is the story of Jesus' final victory over Satan, and it should produce in us celebration. Amen? We should celebrate. Yeah. And I love when we see things in the Scripture that provoke celebration. There's something that accompanies that celebration. You've experienced it too. I remember when I was at our previous church and we hit that 10-year milestone. 
having been there for 10 years and pastored the church. And we had this reception and all these people came and were thanking Lindley and me for how we had given and served and loved and honored the Lord there for the last 10 years. We felt very unworthy of that kind of celebration and those kinds of accolades. It was an incredibly humbling experience. But I'm going to tell you, one of the things that happened out of that celebration of what God had done is a desire for me to be a better pastor. See, out of that celebration came encouragement to be something better. I experienced it again this last summer when our daughter was married. You've heard me talk about that, a great time of celebration. I'm gonna tell you right now, out of that celebration of that marriage came encouragement in my own life to be a better husband. See, when I celebrated that experience, I could not celebrate that experience without thinking, I want to be a better husband. The celebration led to encouragement. There is no greater vision that should evoke celebration than Jesus' final once and for all victory over Satan. And from that celebration, we should experience encouragement, and we need it. I mean, we need encouragement. Have you felt this last week in your life, man, I need some encouragement? Have you had those times in life you think, I need encouragement? Well, this is a vision that evokes celebration that leads to encouragement. And here's why we need it right now where we live. We need encouragement right now where we live because Satan is not yet totally and finally defeated. Yes, he's a defeated foe. Yes, he is not the equal foe to Jesus Christ. But he is still seeking to deceive. And the path that each of us is walking right now towards final victory and ultimate celebration is a path that often involves the enemy's attempt to deceive us, the enemy's attempt to destroy us, and the enemy's efforts to ruin Everything we hold dear as followers of Christ. We are living in a time we need encouragement. And this is a vision that can provide us not only reasons to celebrate, but can provide us incredible encouragement. See, this vision is not just a vision of the future. This vision is a vision of the future that helps us better see the present. In this vision of the future, we see that Satan and his power over death is eradicated. He is no longer able to demonstrate his power of death. He's done. So this vision of the future should help us better see the present. So in light of this vision of Satan's inability to carry out his power of death ever again, we ought to see today differently. This is how we ought to see today. Listen to this passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, 
Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So the vision of the future is that Satan has no more power. Not power of death? Nothing. But because of the vision we see in the future, we know that today, and this is how we see it, just like the Bible tells us, that we see that Satan, in respect to our lives as followers of Christ, has already been bound up in regard to the power of death. So that you and I don't have to fear death. We don't have to be afraid because Satan no longer has the power of death over us. Because if we trust in Jesus Christ and we die in that faith, we will then be raised again to life and we will never taste death. I don't have to be afraid of death or Satan's power of death because of Jesus Christ and his final victory. So I can see my present life differently. You see that? Because of this vision of Satan's future demise we know that he doesn't have at this point in the vision he doesn't have never will have the power to accuse satan is a master accuser just the way he wields his power of death to bring fear into people in regard to death he is the master accuser wanting people to feel the guilt and shame of their sin But this final vision tells us that Satan loses all his power. And his power to accuse, he no longer is able to wield. So when we see this vision of the future, it should cause us to see our present differently. Here's how you should see your present in relation to the future. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is victorious. And Satan in this vision is completely powerless. And so when he stands to accuse you and me, because we see the final vision of Satan's defeat and Jesus' victory, we know that the accusations that the enemy brings against us this side of heaven have absolutely no substance. Yeah, I I sin. And yeah, the devil wants to come against me and accuse me. But you know what I can do? I can remind myself in that moment because of Jesus' final victory that every single sin in my life has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and the rulers and the authorities, Satan who comes against me, he has been triumphed in Christ and I do not have to succumb to the accusations of the enemy. I'm free because forgiveness is final. Yes, and that future vision instills in me a perspective on my today, free from the accusation of the enemy. Free. This future vision 
is so powerful because it shows us that Satan has no authority and power ever again. And seeing this vision changes the way I see today. Here's another way it changes how you see today. Satan no longer has power to deceive. So how does that inform how you see today? Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. This is the end of 1 John. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Did you catch that? Because we see the vision of Satan's final defeat and Jesus' ultimate victory. We can look at our days today and know that Satan right now has already been bound in the sense that he no longer has the power to deceive us. Is deception a threat? Certainly. But we can overcome the deceptive practices of the enemy because we know Jesus Christ. And we have a promise that he will help us understand who he is. In understanding who he is, we will stand against the deception of the enemy, saying he is powerless to lead us astray. This vision of the future changes how we see our present. When we walk together in Christ as the church family, do you know what happens when we walk in such a way that we say death has no power over us? When we say forgiveness is final for us, the accusations of the enemy do not affect me. When we look at this and say, I can know Christ and I don't have to fear being deceived by the enemy. I can walk with him and we can walk together. You know what happens? All of a sudden, as we live in this world, do you know what we become? We become the very ones who can boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings to a world that simply cannot be rescued out of the grips of Satan any other way than hearing the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 asks some very pointed questions. How will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear about him if they don't have a proclaimer? Do you know that Satan and all his power that he's able to wield this side of heaven because of the vision that we see, we know that Satan has no power to stop any one of us from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He cannot stop us. We can proclaim gospel and he cannot stop us and people can be set free and the enemy can't do anything about it. We are victorious people. And we get to walk this side of this vision in complete confidence that we have been given because of Jesus Christ the authority to stand in our faith, to hold on no matter what. And you know what this vision is for us? It's a precursor of the reward that's in store for all of us. If we hold on, are faithful to Jesus Christ, one day we will experience a great reward. 
We will rule with Christ. We will worship Him. We will walk with Him on a new heaven, new earth. We will be with Him and we will forever be happy. And we will say, holding on to Christ was more than worth it. You can hold on. No matter what. You can hold on. You will not be disappointed. You will not regret holding fast to Jesus Christ and all that he says. But you know what this is? This is some honey. And everybody here knows that this honey is sweet. I don't have to convince you of that. You know it. You know that it's sweet. If I ask you if honey is sweet, it's an automatic yes, it's sweet. Everybody here knows honey is sweet. But none of you know it like I do right now. Mm. Whew, that is good. I can go another half hour. I have to get in that bit of honey. I've I've told you. This morning, what Jesus wants us to see in Revelation 20. You know it. But we need to know it. We need to taste the sweetness of this truth. If it's going to evoke celebration and lead to encouragement. There's a prerequisite to tasting the sweetness of this truth. It's the same prerequisite for those who tasted the goodness of Christ's reward in Revelation 20. They died. They were beheaded. They were killed. The prerequisite for tasting the sweetness of this truth is taking up your cross and losing your life for Jesus Christ. If you really want to taste the sweetness of this vision, it necessitates a fresh surrender of your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every person according to his deeds. If you want to taste the sweetness of this vision, 
now and forever. It necessitates dying to yourself and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Moms and dads, a surrender to Jesus Christ means that you love your kids in a way that helps them see the glory of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. Grandmas and grandpas, surrendering to Jesus Christ means that you live your life in such a way that your kids and your grandkids can see the beauty of the gospel. You live your life in such a way that those people who are in the same category of life as your kids and your grandkids around you see the beauty of the gospel. In your workplace, surrendering to Christ means that you're leveraging everything you can so that people can see the gospel. In your neighborhood, it means you're thinking about how How can I live around my neighbors so that they see and hear the beauty of Jesus Christ? Giving your life for Christ means you're laying down everything that you think you own, everything you think you deserve, everything you hope for, and you're saying, I'm going to follow Christ no matter what. I will die to myself. I will lay down my life, and I will follow Jesus. If we die to ourselves and we surrender ourselves to Christ, that is how we taste the sweetness of this vision. That's how we celebrate. That's how we find the encouragement we need. And I want to encourage you this morning to make a decision to surrender your life to Christ.